Okay, I'm going to ask you this morning to use your imaginations with me. This is different for me because, for one, I'm not used to, I'm not used to uh, speaking so much. But when I do speak, it's a congregation in the front, so I feel free here. I feel like I can loosen up a little bit. Thank you for uh, um, allowing us to come this morning. And um, uh, my brother Andy had invited me a little, about a month ago, I would say, maybe close to a month ago. And he allowed me to pick which date. He gave me a list of dates that were open, and I picked the soonest one because I'm excited to share what God has done for me. And I believe that it would bless you as well. However, I'm going to ask you to, to use your imagination. I, I want to start using more PowerPoints. I just have to get more familiar, a little bit more comfortable with it, and that's where Elonzo will come in. He's my brainiac. Um, until then, I'm going to ask you to use your imagination with me. How many Colorado natives do we have here? Two Colorado. One. Okay. Who's been here longer than 10 years? We have more natives there. <laughs> Who's been here long enough to be familiar with the snowy winters in the mountains? Okay, so now we're, now we're getting closer. My point is, we're, we're in the mountains, we're hiking. I know there's a lot of hikers here, but it's cold. And so we bundled up, we all decided to go on an afternoon hike. And the leader gets us lost. And as we're lost, it's starting to become dark, a little bit colder. Sun's going down, we're at the top of the mountain, and we still have to make our way back. By the way, this really happened to us at Stanley Canyon. We were following a friend of ours, and she was so uppity-uppity about going on this hike, we figured that we would just follow right along. She knew what she was doing, and her husband was with her, and we, we, they were familiar with the mountain. So that's where we are today. We're at the, we made it to the top finally. A few hours passed. We had to cross some, some very cold, icy streams, and... And now the sun is down, and we're at the top of the mountain where we intended to be, but we didn't intend to be there so late. Now we have to find our way back down. Now snow starts, starts coming down. I'm adding the snowy part for reasons you'll see later. It was summer when we were in the mountains. But. <laughs> so snow, snow is coming down now, and it's probably 7.30 at night, dark, December. And there was already existing snow in the mountains. It's kind of like an icebox here in Colorado. When it snows, it takes a little bit for it to go away in the mountains. Um, but it, we're now going, and there's more snow, and there's trees covered in snow, and it's dark, and it's cold, and, the, and the, the outfits we're wearing was only good enough for the daytime. We're low on food, we're low on supplies, and we're lost, totally lost. We start bickering back and forth, arguing with one another, and we just want to get home. And there's no way home. We're, we're hopeless at this point. Hours pass and we can't feel our fingertips anymore. And maybe your, your toes are starting to feel numb. You can't feel your ears or your nose. And uh, you gave your child the last, or grandchild, the last, um, the last uh, well, energy bar or something to help them get through. So now we're feeling weak, hungry, tired alone now we split up trying to find different ways so it's it's disastrous at this point where there's no good that we see coming out of it now it's about midnight and the snow is piling up there's no warmth there's no shelter but once you know it 
we look behind this tree and there's a little glimmer. It's not the cars. It's not down at the bottom of the mountain. But we see a little bit of light. Go closer, kind of open up the trees. And there's a nice cabin with about 12 inches of snow on top of the roof, top of the trees, snow drifts surrounding the cabin. And there's a little window that you see fire. So somebody must be in there. At this point, our only hope is to go knock on the door, right? Is that what we're going to do? Or would we run back into the darkness to try to find the street, to try to find the car? We have no cell phone reception. Maybe they have a landline. Maybe they have something that would help us. Maybe we can stay the night and warm up and they would feed us. How many would navigate towards this shelter, this refuge? That would be the obvious, right? Human survival. How many would rather not be adventurous and continue the journey in the cold, dark night alone? If we got some, some darers, huh? Well, that's where I was, I would say, probably about 10 years ago. In the cold, dark night of life, felt alone with no hope and didn't see any way out of it. I, uh, I was raised in what you would call a middle class, maybe just under middle class family. We weren't rich. We didn't have all the money that one could, could need. I know my mom had did her best as a single parent. She raised three kids on her own. I have one, I got one sister, one brother, one older, one younger. So I'm the middle of three. And I also have a, a half sister through my dad's side, who's just one month older than me. Um, my mom raised us in Colorado Springs. So we are natives. We come from the southeast side over there, which if you're familiar with Springs, it's nothing like where Focus on the Family is. It's, it's, Springs is known for the, the, uh, the academy. It's known for the military bases there. From, and anybody outside of Colorado knows it for things like Focus on the Family. But the side of town I was raised on was a little bit different. It, it was, uh, in those times, it was more of a lower class. And I think even today, some of the southeast side is still lower class and um, you know, uh, welfare and, and, uh, it's not, it's not as, uh, uppity up and happy as you would see towards focus on the family. And that's where I was raised at. I was raised on a street called Charleston, which is right off of Wyatt. And I went to a school called Panorama and Sierra. Well, I didn't make it all the way through Sierra Asbury. I met my wife in high school. Uh, we were in the same science class. She was a grade younger than me and she used to do my homework for me. So back then we were just friends. We weren't dating, but yeah, I mean, she, she was everything somebody could want in a friend, right? I mean, um, I started uh, getting involved with the wrong crowd and I say that mildly. I just, they were good friends at that time. We were all good friends to each other. We looked out for each other and we cared about each other, but we cared about each other in the wrong way. We, we would turn each other on to alcohol and, and drugs and, and, things that a 14, 15 year old shouldn't be into. And that's just what we knew. It's what we were growing up around. When, whenever mom was working two jobs, brother and I would be out with our friends. He'd be with his friends. I'll be with my friends. My sister would be with her friends. We all kind of hung out around three different types of crowds. But um, in, in the crowd I hung out with, that's just, it's just what we did. Uh, violence filled the uh, tempers. Um, that's how we expressed ourselves. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't bad like, like you would think it was. We were just 
kids growing up. That's, it was almost normal to us. Then when I started hitting adolescence, I started doing things my mom asked me not to do, and I would continue behind her back. And she warned me that I had a younger brother looking up to me, and she couldn't, she couldn't see me staying in the house if I continued to live this life and be rebellious against her. So uh, she had to make the tough choice to, to let me out. And I was about 14 years old, and my dad, that's where he came in the picture, came back around he came and picked me up and moved me down to Alamosa Colorado where I spent almost a year going to school down there and getting into a little bit more trouble down there my uh I went back home my mom let me back in and once you know it I did the same thing the dog returns to his vomit I did the same thing and I ended up getting kicked out again because I wouldn't listen to mom this time I was about 15 years old something like that. And my dad, I went back down to live with him, but he ended up getting a, a jail sentence for, I think, nine months. So I had nine months of his house all to myself as a 15-year-old. And what do you do with a house to yourself as 15? You invite your friends in, skip school all you want, and have do any, anything you want to do. And it, it was fun at that time as a kid, but it was sinful. And, and I look back now and don't see how I'm still alive today in some of the things I partook in. I can tell you story after story of the things we did, but that wouldn't bring glory to God. That would really just bring glory to the sin that we were partaking in. But it was a rebellious lifestyle. Um, I finally came back to Colorado Springs. I got my GED as a, an agreeance with my mom to move back into her house. But I went back to the streets, went back to the life that I was I used to living the life I was comfortable in. When I finally reconnected with Asbury, um, she was a lot different than I was. I was doing a life that she wasn't familiar with, but her dad had did some prison time. And so she kind of knew about, you know, some of the things I was into, but she didn't live that life herself. And we started dating. Um, soon after that, we had Elijah. We were kids when Elijah was born. I was 19. And so I like to say that I'm growing up with my kids. Uh, we did everything backwards. We didn't know the Lord back in these days. Um, and we would have never had, or I know I wouldn't, would have never had a deacon or an elder or anyone from the church into my house. I was anti-Christian because my conscience wouldn't let me uh, be around people who were living right. And my mom taught me about God when I was young. She told me, she taught me how to pray. She, we were raised Catholic and she was very into her church. She made us go to Sunday school when we were young kids. And uh, when we hit that age of confirmation, which is a tradition in that church, she allowed us to start making our own decisions, whether we kept going to church or not. And, and I chose to stay as far away from God as possibly I could. I never owned a Bible. This was my first Bible. How many of you are familiar with these type of Bibles? Are you familiar with this type of Bible? It's a Gideon's. I praise God for that ministry because if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't have this Bible here. I never used it. I mean, I used it, but not for godly reasons. You see, it's pretty beat up and wore out. I'm not proud of that. I tried to throw this Bible away at least two or three different times. And I always found myself going to the trash can to, to dig it out. And I, it's not a superstitious type thing, I don't believe. I just think that because of that seed my mom sent in me when I was a young child, I had that knowledge of God, that there was something bigger than me that, that was interested and concerned. 
but my conscience wouldn't let me come to him. You know, sin does something to us. It makes us so stupid that it would make us run from him instead of go back to him. That's what sin does to us. So we shouldn't fear God in a way of being scared of him. We should, we should be scared of sin because sin will separate us. All right. So if you notice here, there's kind of a burn mark. There's these things were made by uh, different parties. I, I was at a hotel party, 16 years old at a hotel party. And I seen this on the, the shelf and took it out. It's missing pages. And, and it's, it's weird that I knew nothing about the Bible back then, but the pages it's missing is the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, right? I use those pages to, uh, excuse me, I know there's children here. And I'm going to try to keep it as mild as I could. I use those pages to roll, you know, you know, with because uh, we, we needed something to smoke with. So I would smoke out of the Bible. Pretty demonic. It's a pretty demonic thing to do. And this is why I wanted to throw the Bible away because it's a, it's a reminder, it's a rebuke to me of the way I used to live. Um, over here, you can see um, it's wet, you know, spilling alcohol on it and just really disrespectful to the Bible. I think that was a demonic spirit that lived within me at that time. Um, it's ripped open here. I... Again, it's missing more pages. First Bible I've ever owned, 16 years old. Used it for demonically possessed things. But like I said, I can't find myself to get rid of it. My conscience bears witness to me of where God pulled me from every time I look at it. Another Gideon's Bible. This one's special to me. This one's not as beat up as that one. This came later on in my life. I was in county jail in, in El Paso County with no Bible. But at, at this time, I had been introduced to God when I was incarcerated. Um, I was actually introduced to God when I was a free man by a friend of mine. I won't go into too much detail about that, but it was a friend of mine that I grew up with. His older brother and his wife brought Bible studies to our house in, in this time of our life where Asbury and I were on a rocky time in our relationship. And I was just in the perfect spot to hear about the gospel. Amen. I, uh, I ended up getting sentenced to some prison time. Um, after becoming a Christian, I was baptized. We did a child dedication ceremony for the children in 2013. And shortly after that, I ran into a test in my life where I ended up getting into a physical altercation. I, I punched a guy for beating up my wife's sister, and he ended up passing away. And I was charged with reckless manslaughter. And sentenced, I was facing 22 years in prison. I was sentenced to four years for this, for this incident. It was, wasn't anything that I intended to do, but it's something I live with every day. I was released one year ago from prison. So as a Christian, I went back to my old vomit. I, all I knew was violence. If you had a problem with someone, well, then you handle it with violence. You don't call the cops. You don't you don't ask someone to call the cops. You handle your business on your own. And that's sort of where I was in that I was in the mindset of coming out of that lifestyle and becoming more like Jesus. But I still held on to that way of thinking where I have to handle my own business. I, I can't call the cops even as a Christian. I still had a gun. I, I still I was doing all this, but I didn't have a gun when I did this crime. So I understand that uh, sanctification is the work of a lifetime. In fact, Sister White writes about that, that there is no such thing that it, it happens instantaneously. And so I was at the early years of becoming a Christian. This, this crime happened. I was about a year, year and a half into the faith. 
And um, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't lose my faith going to prison. In fact, if anything, and that's where this message is going to kind of go. You'll see a little bit later in the sermon. Um, it's going towards to lean on. You know, it's easy to praise God when times are good and when you're on top of the mountain, when you're when life is just a little easier than what it should be. It's easy to say praise the Lord. In my personal experience, it was harder to praise him going through the tough times, going through times of despair and trial and testing. It was hard to say, you know what? I still trust you. I made a stupid decision. And, and a lot of times some of our, our hardships in life come from uh, consequences of our choices. Not all the time. There's times where God, he chooses, he chooses a certain elect that would just go and bear his name through the trials. And they've done nothing wrong. And if you're one of those, then just remember that he's with you through it all. In my circumstance, I made a bad choice. I punched a guy and he fell and hit his head and, and, and hitting his head caused him to go into a coma. Four days later, he passed away. So do I deserve to be out and free right now? No, not for the crime. But I believe God knew my heart, that he knew that that wasn't my intention. He knew that I was trying to stand up for someone who wasn't defending herself. And, and God's seen that. And he still allowed me to go away for a few years and learn my lesson and rub shoulders with guys who are never coming out, who did the same thing as me, made the wrong choice, and, and now they're doing lifetime in prison. Um, this Bible right here got me through my county times. You can see all the notes in there that I took. Songs that I wanted to listen to when I got out. Um, a little bit of studies that I've done on the triune Godhead and even some uh, messianic studies I've taken in there. And I, I just had so much time in there that I wouldn't have had had I still been out here. God separated me from my wife and my children on accordance of my choice to, uh, to do what I did. He allowed me to be separated, much like he did with, uh, with Judah when, when uh, Babylon came in and, and separated them, took them off to Babylon. You know, we get so distracted with life that sometimes God comes second place and becomes a, life can become an idol, work or, or family or whatever. Even blessings from God can become an idol. And so I believe God allowed me to do this prison time to uh, get closer to him. Um, I did have a, a gang past, so I had to come face to face with, uh, with uh, the past that I was leaving in my early years of Christianity. And, I, and the Lord gave me the strength to, to deny myself. He gave me the strength to, to walk through the prison sentence totally dependent on him and not the gang members that I was affiliated with. So I have to give him the glory. I never had to, in my life, in the three years I did in there, I never had to tell the cops anything about the gang members. I never had to, what they would call being a rat or a snitch. I never had to do that. I've never had to uh, run away from anyone in there. Actually, I walked the yard in there as a solo man, a man of God which can only be given glory to him. I cannot say that I did anything in and of myself to make my prison sentence any easier. If anything, it was a little harder to be a Christian in there than being a Christian out here because it, it kind of reminded me of what I read about Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, you see a lot of this, the sinful behavior in prison and you're trying to be faithful to the word of God with a clear conscience. Now, I can't say I did it perfectly, but I can say that he was with me and helped me up every time I did fall in there. So I just wanted to, to point these out that, you know, if you think these are waste, a waste in the hotel rooms or in the jails, I tell you what, these serve their purpose. They did in my life. 
And I, I will always respect a Gideon Bible and a Gideon minister because this was the Bible that I had to get me through. Okay, so I was in a cold, dark place um, looking for self-approval, looking for approval from others at the expense of hurting others. I would look to uh, gain um, my friends' approval as a kid, you know, just trying to be, trying to be someone I wasn't. And I ended up falling for that lie. I got the deeper I went into that life, I just started being more and more evil, more and more uh, demonically possessed. I believe I wasn't that type of kid growing up. I was a happy kid. My mom taught me how to, uh, you know, do everything that a dad should teach you. Um, she put me and my sister in boxing when we were about seven or eight years old for a little bit. She put us in karate. I remember that. She put my brother and I in, in baseball and t-ball. Uh, she tried to keep us active. You know, she did what she could. And then I started uh, going out, and as I said, just hanging around the guys that were doing, doing the most um, in, in law-breaking and not being law-abiding citizens. And I wanted to fit in. I wanted to gain their approval. So guess what I started doing? started breaking the law. And I started doing more and more. I started to believe that's who I was. The more, the more that we partake in these type of behaviors, we start to believe that's us. And the Lord never designed us for that. Um, you know, uh, a friend of mine... His older brother gave his life to the Lord, and I, I witnessed the change in his life. I seen how him and his wife started uh, distancing themselves from the crowd, and I kind of wanted that. I never told anybody because you would be sort of like an outcast if you didn't drink alcohol, didn't go to the bars, didn't smoke, didn't these type of practices. So I, I just kind of kept it to myself, but I knew that's what I had to do to, to raise up Elijah and Alonzo and Luciano in a better way, a better way that I, that I was living. You know, I wanted them to have more. I wanted them not to experience that. And to do that, I, I had to make a change. And I tried changing. I tried uh, being a good guy, a good husband. I started working full time doing plumbing and, and I, I, uh, I wanted to provide for my family, but there was always that darkness that kept coming back to me. Um, so in that cold, dark place in life, I decided to, to give this a try. When my friend and his wife would bring us Bible studies, we started to learn so much about God that we never knew before, so much about his character that just seemed so warming in a cold place. It just seemed so attracting. Have you ever been at a campsite where people just like to draw around the campfire, you know, roast some marshmallows, and it's warm at night, and and it's really, it's really attracting. It's, how can you say, it's wooing. It woos you to it. It's comforting. It's the sound of the fire snapping and, you know, the kids laughing around the campfire. That's, that's really what I'm drawn to. And that's sort of what drawn me to the Lord is, was that, that feeling of warmth, the feeling of a father that loves me and didn't judge me for the stupid behavior I partook in, but he actually was welcoming me. We're going to turn to Psalm 103, verse 8. If you brought your Bibles, good for you. If not, if you have one on a device, open that up. We're going to Psalm 103, verse 8. What verse are we going to? Psalm 103, verse 8. We're going to read to 14. And I, I, I got to put this in here while you guys are opening your Bibles. Psalm 103, verse 8. It's a, it's a beautiful psalm. It's a psalm of mercy. And in these verses here, in the text that we're getting ready to read, I just hope that you find your early Christian experience. I know that you all may have been born Christian, or maybe some hasn't, or some were, you know, third or fourth generation Adventist. I, 
I don't know, wherever you are, we all had to become, there had to be a point in life where we became a Christian, right? Because God has children. It don't matter about your parents and your grandparents, who they were in the church, who are you, right? So I, I pray that in reading this verse, that you'll go back to your uh, conversion experience, whatever the story may be. Psalm 103, verse 8, are we all there? Okay, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us. No, nor will he ever keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. And get this, as far as the east is, from the West, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Amen. We don't all have the same sin, brothers and sisters. Beloved, we haven't all been through the same thing in life. But I can rest assured this, that we've all been separated from God at one point. We've all believed the lie of the enemy. And there's not one righteous, not one good. But do you see how the Bible text here says that he has not dealt with us according to our sins? Think, of, and I'm not asking you to think of your sin to make you feel bad, make you feel guilty. I'm asking you to think of the lowest part in life you've ever been in to remind you of how good God is. What's that pit that you were in when God saved you from it? It says that he has not dealt with us according to our sins, that he's slow to anger. I used to have this idea of God being on a throne ready to judge me. That's why I was scared to come back to him. My mom told me about God, but I didn't want anything to do with him. I would, and the farther away I would try to run from him, the more sinful desires and pleasures I was getting into, which would just drive me further and further. But he never went anywhere. He was still there. And he took me back, just like that warm fire was welcoming. It just inviting. And that's what drew me to him. When I heard my friend tell me about the love of God from the Bible and, and teach us the Bible studies, that's what I felt. I felt a warm fire. You know, the Bible says that God is a fire. He does. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Let's go there. The Bible speaks of God being, you know, the Bible says God is love. And so I think so many times in this uh, religion of ours, the Christian religion in general, right, the capital C church, no matter what walk of, of denomination, the idea of fire can sometimes hold a negative effect, especially speaking to an outsider. I know as being an outsider, if you were to tell me God and fire, it wasn't good. I was thinking I was going to the fire. But that's not what the Bible speaks about. The Bible paints this picture of God being a God of love. And then it calls him a consuming fire. Read it in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Um, it's right here. I just had it. Let me see. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. Sorry, guys. It's right here, men and women. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. That sounds bad on the surface. It doesn't have a positive effect when you first hear it. But think of this for me. Think of this with me for a second. God is a God of consuming fire, a jealous God. Wow. When he created Adam and Eve, did he create them because he was jealous? I believe he created them out of love. 
right? I mean, you have God in his triune nature existing throughout all eternity. And it's like this love was just pouring over and they had to share it with somebody. They had to share it. It was like, like if you had one of the, your favorite meals at a restaurant or maybe you took your kids to this really nice mountain park or to a town with these really beautiful mountains and, and you go back, go back home and you're describing it to somebody that you speak to and you say, you just have to go here. You have to experience this. You have to try this food and you just have to. I can tell you all day long that bananas taste good or Oreos taste good. Right. I can tell you all day long that, you know, uh, rice and beans are really good for you. I can tell you all day long that there's these different drinks that you can have. And um, one of my favorites on International uh, Sabbath at, in Colorado Springs is the, the what is the Puerto Rican drink that we like? something yeah i don't i don't remember the name it's from puerto rico and they they usually always have it there it's one of my favorite drinks it has like a a cherry at the bottom wasn't it was it a cherry that's one but i can't you can't experience the taste of it for yourself i can only i can never convince you that's not our job to convince others about the about the love of god we're not to convince them that's the holy spirit's job but we are to share our experience with them Right. We spoke a little bit about that in, in the Sabbath school, or I didn't, but I heard them speak about it, about the lady at the well. She ran back to give her story, her experience about what Jesus had done. And when she did that, they listened. There was something different about this woman. There was a, she had a glow on her face when she was speaking about Jesus. And they figured they ought to go check it out. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? We come back disappointed. We're already disappointed. We're already in the cold dark of the night in a sinful life. I better go check this out for myself. Right? And so and so that's that's where it was with God when he was creating man, Adam. He had love in his heart. He had love. He wanted to share that. It was pouring over. He had to share this love with someone else. So he created Adam out of love. Matter of fact, the Bible teaches that. That we were created to be one with him in love. I think that's Ephesians chapter 1. The whole purpose of our creation is that we would be one with God. In love. Have you ever been one with somebody in love? Right? You would rather be nowhere else but in that person's presence. And that's what God created Adam and Eve for. Now, if you love someone so much, that means they, you love them. You, and God, we were speaking about this the other day, a, a gentleman and me at work. We were talking about the, the, uh, the sovereignty of God, but yet the free will of man. The two almost seem incompatible with each other like they would just not go together well however they go hand in hand god in his sovereignty and his love gave us free will so we can choose who we would serve every human being for ourselves has to make our own choice we can't hang on the choice of our parents we can't hang on the choice of our church we have to choose what we do with jesus and what the what he has done for us the grace the salvation that was provided the cross, everything that he went through, he did that for every one of you, individually and personally, but yet he did it for the whole world. And we choose personally, what do we do with that grace that he's given us? And in that choice, that's what determines our eternal destiny. Well, God has that jealousy that Deuteronomy talks about, just like you would for your wife or husband or children. If that love belongs to you, then they have, to, they have to face the choice. My wife could be with any other man she wanted to be with. I'm probably not the first choice on her list, but she chose me. 
And for that, I will always be grateful for that. She could have chose anyone she wanted, and she chose me. So if she was to give that love to someone else, wouldn't there be a little bit of jealousy coming up? What would prompt the jealousy? It'd be love. It would be prompted by love. Now, in sin, some, some have went uh, extreme in that jealousy and done horrible, evil things. But the point of this, get the point, is that jealousy is prompted by love. So God is jealous for you. He's jealous for me. In the sense that we have all believed the lie of the serpent. Every one of us have believed the lie of the enemy. There's been a time in our life where we followed the enemy. We may have even thought we were doing God's will when we followed the enemy. May have made excuses for it. But it was in God's will. And, and outside of God's will, we're following the serpent. We either belong to God or we belong to the enemy. You cannot serve two masters. And so in jealousy, I do believe God got a little jealous when I was in the arms of, the, of Satan. Because God's love for me was so profound, so extreme, that when he seen me playing the harlot, walking with Satan, he, he couldn't just let me go. What's the well-quoted, the best-known verse in Scripture? John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish. This invitation is for everyone, brothers and sisters. And so God in his sovereignty doesn't take away our free choice. Now, fire. I brought this box here. It's not the box that I want you to see. This is a solder kit. So I told you I do plumbing. And how many of you know that water lines often go together through solder? What is solder? Solder is an alloy metal that holds joints of precious metals together. So I hope I don't set any. Is there any fire alarms right by me? The flame is just the visible part of the fire, right? Remember, we were in the cold, in the dark, looking. We seen through the window. What do we see? We seen a fire. The flame is just the visible, but there's many other elements that go into that fire, elements that make it hot and warm and make effects of the metal to braise together. You know, the Bible also speaks about uh, a refiner. I mean, Elijah and Elonzo just saying, refiner's fire for us. What are the lyrics? Purify my heart. Let me be as gold. I think the book of Revelation makes it very clear that our faith should be as pure gold. So many of us get uncomfortable when we get too close to the fire. That's a comfortable space for me. Any closer? Ouch. Ouch, if I get any closer. How many has got burnt by the fire before? So you want to stay a comfortable distance. However, that's not what it's like in, <laughs> that's not what it's like in our walk with God. He draws us a little bit at a time. He's not going to open up himself completely, entirely, all at once, because we're going to get burned. You know, the Bible also describes God of being a consuming fire in the sense that in the last day, those who were not willing to perish to themselves will perish because it's almost like God is coming down one last time. And in his presence, they weren't prepared for that. This, there's two groups of people. C.S. Lewis said, one group while they were living said, your will be done. 
And in the judgment, we would be the people that, be, that can stand the, the radiance of God. The other group, in the end, in the judgment, is the group that God tells them, your will be done. So in, in this time of judgment, what group are we going to be a part of? Are we today walking with God in the sense of a little step at a time, one step at a time, he's, he's purifying us. We're going through that fire. You know, God described as a fire. Can we say then that it's him? Matter of fact, we can say this because the Holy Spirit is spoken of. Let's go here to uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. And when you get there, let me get an amen. John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus, right? Jesus steps up. He says, behold, the Lamb of God that... But the sin of the world wasn't taken away right there. We're still faced today with the process of fight. The battle isn't with Satan. That's Jesus' battle. The battle is with ourself. But Jesus gave us a word of comfort before he went back to heaven. He said, it's good that I go away from you. Because if I don't go away, the comforter won't come. Well, what's the comforter's job? Let's read here. He's speaking about the Holy Spirit. And here in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, he says, I indeed baptize you. This is John speaking. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he, speaking of Jesus, who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the what? The Holy Spirit and fire. There it is. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Wow. You know that God's love for you, and that's where I think the Bible author, I believe it was Moses, right, in Deuteronomy? We believe it was Paul in Hebrews? That's where I think they were going with this. God is a consuming fire. You understand that his love for you could never be quenched? Do you understand that his love for you could never be put out? Even though a fire here, when it, there's three elements of fire, right? There's fuel, oxygen. Uh, what's the other one? There's a third one. I forget. I'm not a firefighter or anything, but I knew some firefighters that were fighting uh, wildland fires. And I asked them a little bit about fire because of this topic here. And they explained to me that if any one of those elements were to disappear, the fire would go out. That's a whole separate sermon in and of itself. That's good news. That means that the wicked do not burn for eternity, except the fire will eventually go out. Destruction, annihilation. Then God, in the recreation process, we can live eternally with him back home in the new Jerusalem without a trace of sin other than his, his nail scarred hands. So not to go off too deep onto that road, but my point is this. Jesus, when he was pronounced by John the Baptist, here comes the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He didn't take it away all at once. I think he allowed us to wrestle with it, but he gave us a helper. He gave us the Holy Spirit. I understand you guys are doing the, I keep saying you guys, and I'm sorry. I feel so convicted every time I say you guys, and my wife knows why, because I was preaching one time at South Church, and there was somebody in the crowd, 
And uh, he came up to me at the end of the sermon and he says, oh man, that was a great sermon, but can I just suggest one thing? And it's just a bad habit. He says, don't refer to the crowd as you guys. <laughs> There's women in there too. <laughs> so I'll just say beloved or brethren, right? Brothers and sisters, my friends. All right, where was I going? I believe that, that Jesus allows us to wrestle with our sin so we can become so disgusted with it, right? There's a difference. We hate sin now. That don't mean that you're going to be perfect overnight, that you're never going to sin again. What it means now is in our experience with sin, it's more of a battle than it was before we came to Jesus. Before Jesus came to us, I should, I should say, because God does come to us in the dark and cold of the night of sin that we live in. He finds us right where we are. That's one of the things I love about Jesus is that he, right where we are, he picks us up right there. When we go out to witness to people, I don't know how y'all do it, how, you know, everyone might have their own gift and their own way of witnessing to someone else. But either way, we, we should be witnessing as the body of Christ. But when we do go out to exercise the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given us, I do hope that when you do go out there and speak to, to strangers in the community, that you start right where they are, right where they are. If someone is gardening, hey, that's a really nice garden that you have going on. If someone's jogging, hey, yeah, you know, good job. I see, I see what you're doing. You're doing it. Start right where they are. That's what Jesus did. And he came and, he, and he was, he's the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, but he allows us to wrestle with it. But yet he promises, what's the promise? Philippians 1.6, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it into the day of Jesus Christ. He's the Holy Spirit. He was sent from Jesus to help us. I know I'm running low on time. The Holy Spirit came to dwell within us now. He's the fire. You guys are doing, y'all are doing the 40-day devotional by Dennis Smith, right? I love that. Asbury and I did that together as prayer partners, and we've done another one by him. I think it was a health one. Um, but the point in that study is that we need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a point in there baptism it comes from a word baptismos or something like that i'm not a scholar that knows the greek and the hebrew but i have studied some words and the word baptismos means literally to immerse into water to to be immersed in the holy spirit doesn't that sound beautiful take over me till there's nothing left but we want some control we still want to direct our lives but we have to be baptized. The Holy Spirit immerses us. Now that's water. That's a figurative of, of water. Baptism. Immerse. What would it be for fire? Consume. Consume me, oh God. Consume me. Per Let me perish so I can live. Right? Because in the end, so that you will not perish but have everlasting life, who's going to live in eternal fire? We will. The only eternal fire there's going to be is God and us being in his presence for all eternity. If God is a consuming fire, yet we won't be consumed because through this life here, the Holy Spirit has been allowed to do his work step by step by step. And if we don't allow that process to continue, well, then we're just prolonging the process of sanctification, which means then we may not be ready for the second coming. What's Jesus waiting for to come back? He's waiting for his bride. He's waiting for his bride to look just like him. 
My question this morning is, do we look like Jesus? No matter how long have we been Christians. I've been a Christian now for seven years. Seven years, right? 2013. It was 2012 where our friends came and brought us Bible studies in the house. We decided to look for a church. They kept the Sabbath, knew nothing about Seventh-day Adventists. We just wanted to follow the Bible. We wanted to find a church who was keeping God's commandments. We found uh, Palace of Peace, and then we went to Central. We went to South. We ended up staying at South because they put on these Revelation seminars, these Daniel seminars. And in the, in the seminars, we've seen this, this whole different characteristic of God through the Bible. And don't you know it? If you stay in the Bible, the less you want to sin. The more I stay away from the Bible, the more I find myself sinning. There's something powerful about this book here, the Bible. I just love that sermon that that Pastor Godfrey gave a couple weeks ago, and he was describing the need for the Bible. And I believe that. I, I agree with that 100%, that the Holy Spirit will transform our lives as we read this word, as we eat on the, on the bread of life. There's a positive portion of fire. There's also a negative portion of fire. But brothers and sisters, if the Holy Spirit is the one that's controlling that fire, we can rest assured it would never go out if the Holy Spirit's controlling it. If we control it, we might turn it up a little bit too much. We might be the weird Christians that people were talking about. We might turn it down too much and become cold. Let the Holy Spirit control that fire. Sometimes in life, I have to make this point before we close. I have to because... Sometimes in life, we may experience loss or pain, sudden suffering or sickness. I know a lot of people who are sick. And I mentioned it a little bit ago, but sometimes God will call some people to walk through that that road of suffering. But are you alone on it? He's with you. It's not anything you did. Some, so many times as, as humans, the natural way we lean is that we must have done something wrong. We must have committed some sin in our life, maybe when we were younger, that God is punishing us right now for the sin that we've committed. I'm here to remind you that he's a just and holy God, a merciful God, slow to anger. As a father pities his children, so does he pities those who fear him. So if I wouldn't hold my son's wrongdoing against them and my mom wouldn't hold my wrongdoings against her, then what makes us think that a holy God would hold our past sins against us? If you're walking through a life of struggle and suffering or sickness, whatever you may be dealing with, I don't know you, but he does. Please, please remember that it's nothing that you're being punished for. You know, when I was going through my trials, and again, I do remind myself that I made a wrong choice. I did. It was a consequence of my choice. But when I was separated from God, for th- or separated from my family, alone with God for three years, in Sterling Correctional Facility, one, one of the biggest prisons in Colorado with 2,500 inmates, when I was there trying to do right, surrounded by Sodom and Gomorrah, with every temptation to get back into the old life that I used to live, and it would have been easier to, to roll with the crowd and roll with the gangs because they have the popularity. They have, the, they have all what you want in there. They have the, the, the how can I say, the authority. I mean, they, everything runs through them. You think cops run these places. They don't. The inmates run these places. It would have been so much easier to do my time if I would have just ran with the crowd. But because I decided to go against the grain, sometimes you get, sometimes, you ever put your finger against the grain of a wood? 
that's not surfaced and that's not smoothed? Did you get a splinter? Did you get a little cut? That's what happens. But you know what? Going down that, that time of life where I ran against the grain, I wasn't alone. Even in the pain, he was with me and I made a bad choice to get there. If you're going through suffering today and you made no bad choice to get there, rest assured that he's with you. It's not because you're being punished. Even if you've made a bad choice that causes some of your, your, um, your struggles today, he's still with you. He pities us. He cares. And, and, and it's referred to as going through the fire. You may be going through hell right now. You may be going through the fire, but you're going through it. He's going to bring you all the way through it. You'll be closer to him. Trust me, if you're called to walk that path of suffering, there's many Christians, many well-meaning Christians, many solid Christians in their faith that will never know the closeness of God that you do because you've been chosen to walk through that path of suffering. Walking through that suffering will bring you so much closer to him than what it could be if you were just living a pleasant life. But it's a tough walk. It's not easy. As we close, we're going to open up to Song of Solomon, chapter 8. There's so much more, more that I wanted to share. I just don't have enough time, but I hope that you've got the gist of the message. I hope that you've really heard the message this morning. And if you haven't yet, then you'll hear it now. In the book of Song of Solomon, you know, it's not a book that I hear a lot of sermons preached out of. It's more of a love book. Song of Solomon, chapter 8. You know, when I first read this book, I thought to myself, why is this even in the Bible? I mean, it's talking about things that a kid really can't really say. You know, it's talking about the, the love relationship, the, the matrimonial relationship between a man and his wife, right? The intimacy, right? And I'm thinking, what does this have to do with Jesus? Where can I find Jesus in this book? This is a stupid love story. But when you start to study the Bible from the center of the cross... You see Jesus in every single book of the Bible, including this one. I have a question for you before we start reading this. Who can think of a passage where the people of God is known as the bride? Right? Ephesians chapter 5, Revelation. How about Revelation? The bride and the spirit say, come. That's our job as we proclaim the, the message of our crucified Savior and risen Savior. Our message is to go and tell this to the dark world. We are not supposed to stay as a group of church and stay together all the time. We need to break like the football players do and say break and go out and play the game. And when we go out to play the game, our message is simply come. What did Jesus tell you at your conversion experience? Come, follow me. That's the message that he gives us to tell others. So the bride of Christ is you and me. We would be the bride of Christ, right? Isn't there a scripture in Genesis that says, I think it's Genesis 2.22 or something, or I might be wrong, 2.23, says, man shall leave his father and mother, and what's the rest of it? Help me out, saints. And become one flesh. Wow, there's another analogy that Jesus uses and Paul uses, that we are, the body of Christ, and he is the head, as the husband is to the wife. 
So there's all these illustrations. And, and there was in, in, in uh, Jesus's day with the rabbis and with the, the, the Israelites and the Jews, they had this way of studying the Bible. It's pretty similar to the way that we study the Bible today. There was four main methods that they would use to study the Bible, okay? And it was, it was the, the, in the Hebrew language, you know, there was no vowels, right? The Hebrew name for God was Yahweh, but we don't even know if that's how they pronounced it. Many of the Jews wouldn't even say his name because they believed it was so sacred and holy that they would use names like Adonai or, or you know, different names that would proclaim God in his, in his character, but they wouldn't use his Hebrew name because they thought it was so sacred. It was more, that was more, how would you call it? It was more, um, you know, you see the black cat, you don't cross it. Uh, superstition. That's more of what it was. We don't, we don't really follow the lines of superstition in the church, but that's, that was their belief. But they, and my point is, in this, it's called, the way we would pronounce it is, is parties or pardes. I don't know how it's correctly pronounced, but it's P-A-R-D-E-S. In the Hebrew, it was only P-R-D-S, right? We've added the vowels so we can pronounce it. And this was the Hebrew way. This, this was their method of studying the scriptures and back, which would have been the Old Testament. So the P, it's, it's basically just an acronym. The P stands for Peshat. Say that, Peshat. It's a Hebrew word. And, and it's basically a straightforward reading of Scripture. Peshat is a straightforward understanding of what the text says. So it's right on the surface, right? You read John 3.16. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you were to read that and interpret that Peshat, that just means what it says. All you have to do is believe in Him, and you can have eternal life. Your journey begins at that moment of belief. That's Peshat, right? Remy's, P-R, rem, Reams or Remy's, R-E-M-E-Z. This means a hint. It's a hint. This is a different way to interpret the scripture. Though it doesn't discount the, the, the surface way, the straightforward way, this actually has more of a deeper allegoric interpretation, right? Like symbolism. Many of this is understood in the book of Revelation, right? They're not literal beasts. These are things that we would understand to be symbols, types and symbols, and then and you study them and unlock these mysteries with other scriptures from the Old Testament, you can have a true understanding of what the book of Revelation is trying to tell us, written by John. That's Remy's. It's a deep allegoric interpretation given in symbols with hidden mysteries. And sometimes the Bible has some scriptures like that, where we can't just take what, what it says on the surface. We have to go a little deeper, right, and, and apply it to prophetic interpretation, the third Hebrew way of studying back in Jesus' time would have been Darash. I think a lot of Messianic uh, Jewish people and even conservative Jewish people, they still use these methods of study. Uh, Darash means to inquire or to seek. We do this a lot today too. We can read a passage written over 2,000 years ago, and in the context it was written, we can read it and try to apply it to our life today. How can we apply this to our life? How can we apply uh, Ephesians 5.18 today? Be filled with the Spirit, right? Like wine. Right? As the drunkard would be filled with wine, you be filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? So that, that word there is to continue to be filled. It's a continual process. Brother said that earlier. Bob, he said, you know, we need to continue to pray to be filled with the Spirit. How can we apply that today? That's Darash. You take a scripture that's old, but use it to apply it to your life today. Now, the fourth method, there's a reason I'm going through all this with you. Just follow me. Stay with me. The fourth one is sod, S-O-D, sod. This is what we're going to use to apply to this passage in, in Song of Solomon. This is how I've seen Jesus in the Song of Solomon. 
Sod, S-O-D. This is a secret mystery, not for prophetic interpretation. However, it's for a deeper meaning of what the scripture is trying to reveal. You go deeper than the surface, right? There's the surface right here. I'm going to draw a tree for everybody. There's the surface. There's a little bit of dirt there, right? And then right here, this is the, what, what would that be of the tree? The, the trunk. And then here's the nice branches with the colors and the birds sitting in the branches. And then underneath the surface is what? Roots. Roots. If there's no roots, that tree is not strong. It's going to fall over when the storm comes. And we're studying the roots now of what this passage is trying to say. So this is actually given through inspiration or revelation. Meaning then that the Holy Spirit, our teacher, has to be the one to interpret this for us and give us this understanding. It's not like, oh, man, you have to check out something new that I just found. I'm going to introduce this to the whole church. No, that's not where we're going. It's something that as you read the scriptures, the Holy Spirit will impress it upon you that this may be truth. At the light of the cross, do you know you can understand the Old Testament in so much of a, uh, a clearer way? And it would be revealed through revelation. Now, what's revelation? Revelation is not just a book of revelation. Revelation is actually the scriptures in general. Right. Special revelation is what God revealed to us about himself through the 66 books of the Holy Bible that we believe. And historically, we've always been a people of the Bible. Our church is founded on following the scriptures alone. So with that being said, we're going to use this fourth method. It's called sod to understand something deeper than what we read on the surface. This is a love story between Solomon and the Shulamite. This is a love story, a conversation of matrimony where they're going back and forth. Oh, no, I love you more. No, I love you more. No, honey, I just want to spend. This is what they were doing. But this is deeper than that. Now, let's study it in the light of the cross. Father, give us understanding in this. We're starting. We're in Song of Solomon, chapter eight. This is the closing verse. So if there's anything that you pick up from today, remember this verse. Song of Solomon, chapter eight. We're in verse six. And this is the Shulamite speaking to the husband, to the bridegroom. So this is the bride speaking to the husband. What did I say? So this is us speaking to Christ. Is this the prayer of your heart? Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy, get this, as cruel as the grave, its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. Wow. Did that hit you like it hit me? Because we're going to read this two more times, but I'm going to just throw in a little something here whenever we read it. What does it mean to set something, to set? Set. We think of it in our language. I'm going to set this ornament here. I'm going to set this on the fridge. Honey, would you set that in the, in the freezer, right? That's not what it's talking about here. To set in Solomon's mind, in the context of being a Hebrew in his day, to set had these meanings. And there was so much more, but I've chose only three of them to share with you this morning. The first one that I chose to share with you to set was to mark, was to mark something. Wow. Did Jesus mark, get his body marked for us? You know, throughout eternity, we're going to see the marks on him. When I think of Jesus, you know, I, I, I try not to do 
um, too much of, of pictures and everything. Matter of fact, the other day I just got done throwing away a really nice um, thing. It had the Christmas ornament with baby Jesus, and it looks so beautiful, right? But that's not how he was born. I think the Holy Spirit will impress upon our imagination pictures of the crucifixion as he sees fit that would help us in our walk with Jesus. We, we, okay, don't get me wrong. Pictures are good. They're okay. Illustrations are nice. But if the Holy Spirit wants you to get and pick up understanding something from the Bible, he will be sure to impress it on your mind. Now picture Jesus with, with the wound on his side and the holes in his hands and, and his brows bleeding, right? Picture him in the garden of Gethsemane, sweat until his sweat became like blood. His feet nailed with something like yay. I mean, the nails we use today and the screws to put together our backyard deck, this is nothing, my friends, compared to what Jesus was hanging on a stake with. He was on the cross, stretched out, and couldn't breathe. But yet the Romans didn't do it. The Romans, yeah, they, they, they perfected the, they, 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 they performed the crucifixion and perfected it, but they didn't do it. It wasn't because of the Romans that Jesus was crucified. Well, it was, it was, it was the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. Well, they delivered him, but it wasn't even because of them that he was crucified. It was because of me. It was because of that dark, cold night that I was living in, in the, in the lost and alone with no warmth. It was because of the choices I have made to be a lover in the arms of Satan, to be a, a, a harlot following the teachings of the serpent. It's because of our sins that Jesus was crucified and treated as sin. So set me as a seal upon, what does it say? Upon your heart and upon, as a seal upon your arm. So mark me on yourself. Did Jesus not mark us on himself? And notice where, where the Shulamite is asking the groom to, to set me on. Is the arm a part of the body? Is the heart a part of the body? Yes, she's asking to be placed as a part of his body. And as Christians, we are now a part of his body, the body of Christ. Let it be our prayer, O oh Lord, let us be set upon your body. Let us not take it lightly. Now she says in, 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 in set, there's another, there's ordain. Ordain is also known to be set. If you're ordained by God, it means he set you there to preserve. Lord, preserve me. A good scripture to read about ordination is, is in Numbers 28.6, the feast ordained by God. So God ordains us today to be men and women proclaiming this message. It's nothing to be taken lightly. Sometimes we can drift off into a little bit of boredom, right? I mean, I'm speaking for myself, but we, can, we hear John 3.16, we get a little bored. It's cliche. Let's bring that fire back. Let's share this message because it's, the probation's coming where Jesus will come back. If we're not intercessory for people who are lost, could that be upon us? If we know him and they don't, and they're not praying for themselves. I believe my mom was praying for me when I was lost. And I believe if it wouldn't been for her prayers, that the Holy Spirit wouldn't have worked on my heart. Because I wasn't inviting God into my life at that time. It takes invitation, intercessory. God is not going to force himself upon someone who don't want him there. If they're not praying for themselves, Lord, help us to pray for them. 
preserved. God will preserve you. The entire Psalm 121, read it when you get a chance later. It's talking about when you get a chance later. It's talking about God preserving us, keeping us, because we can't keep ourselves. If you're like me, after my, my conversion, I just started going back to my old ways a little bit at a time. That's what Satan does. He doesn't tempt us with something we can say no to. He tempts us with something that, we, that we're drawn to. So ask God to keep you, to preserve you, because that's what his word in Psalm 121 says. He will preserve you. And those three words are just three of the meanings when, when the Shulamite says, set me as a seal upon your arm and upon your heart. Preserve me as a seal upon your heart. Keep me as a seal upon your heart. Ordain me, Lord. Mark me on your body. And yet he has done that for every one of us. For love is as strong as death. Now we see this on Calvary. We see this at the cross. Love is as strong as death. Jesus took death so he wouldn't have to live without us. And yet came back from it. I'm going to hurry up through here now. Five minutes is all I ask. I'm sorry, brothers and sisters. Five minutes. Are we okay with five more minutes? Five more minutes. I know I'm going just a little over. Five minutes. Preserve me. Mark me. Seal me, Lord God. Because your love is as strong as death. Even death at the cross. He was willing to die so, and, and risk his eternal existence to go down to the pit of death. He was willing to risk it that. He was willing to come down to this sin-stained earth, go through a nine-month blackout in the womb of a virgin, and have to learn as a human, learn as we did, have to walk as we did. He was willing to go through that and face temptation face-to-face as we do and set aside his divinity and make the choices as a human being to stay in union with his father, to give us an example of how we can overcome sin. He was, and, and the temptation to sin was there for him. He could have sinned, risked his entire eternal existence just to have you. Because heaven wouldn't be the same without you. Or me. So love is as strong as death. He was willing to die and risk his, his existence so he can be with you again. So he can reveal to you his love for you. Because at that time, where were we? We were in the arms of Satan. We were lovers with Satan. Every one of us. It's jealousy. Now there in the text, I have the new King James. I don't know if anyone has like an NIV or something newer. But it says there, I like the way the newer translations translate this because it's more accurate. It says, love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. But it's actually talking about love's jealousy. It's not stating jealousy is as cruel as the grave. It's saying love's jealousy. When you love someone, you will be jealous for them in a righteous way because that love belongs to you. So if you love that person, then your jealousy for them can be as cruel as the grave, meaning you're willing to go to any extent to gain that love back from them because you love that. You can't see yourself without them. And that's how God's love is for us. You know, in the last days, what message will bring the lost world back to God? It's the message of God's love. That's what's going to have to be proclaimed to bring the lost world back to him. Yes, the Sabbath. Yes, yes. And yes, you know, the, the dietary habits that we hold fast to from the Bible. Yes, yes. But that has to be given out of love, out of God's love. And then it's more attractive 
right? I mean, when the Sabbath was presented to me, it was presented out of God's love. And I wanted to keep the Sabbath, not out of obligation, but out of love. And by the way, that's the only way we can have salvation is if we love Jesus. Do we love Jesus? Does, we know he loves us. Now, this is the last part of the message right here. It's jealousy is as cruel as the grave. Did Jesus conquer the grave? He did. Now, listen to what it says right here. Oh, I hope you get this. Its flames are flames of fire. There's the fire again, right? Fire is love. His love is flames of fire will consume us. When we partake in this love of God, when we are willing to stay, if we are being invited and wooed by that warm fire, the warmth of God as a father, and we're willing to set aside whatever's holding us back and say, I'm going to go through that fire. I'm going to experience this fire. I have to. And when we step into the fire, it gets warm and cozy. While God isn't going to burn us, he knows how to control the fire. But when we experience this fire, it will change us. God's love will change you. You will never be the same once you experience this kind of love, a radical love. You will never be the same. And it says it here, a most vehement flame. Song of Solomon 8.6 at the end of the verse, a most vehement flame. Let me translate that. Let me translate that. A most vehement flame. The most flashing fire of Yahweh himself. What she's saying here to Solomon or to what the Shulamite is saying to Solomon is your love for me is just like the flashing fire of Yahweh himself. Don't take my word for it. Go to the Bible, read it, look into it. What does that mean? It don't mean much on the surface. I don't understand what that means on the surface. But if I was to put myself into Solomon's context, understand the language that he wrote, and you don't have to do this. You don't have to become a scholar. You, we have the internet at our fingertips. We can look at what this word means in the original Hebrew. And the Holy Spirit, I'm not saying that you have to know Greek and Hebrew. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying in this verse right here, it would help just a little bit to understand that Solomon's love for his bride, and excuse me, but Jesus' love for his bride is the flashing fire of Yahweh himself. Yahweh gave himself, Jehovah gave himself for you and for me because of his fiery love. The love of Yahweh himself. Now, many waters can't quench it. There's nothing you can ever do to make God love you any less. Martin Luther said, listen to this. Listen to this. Martin Luther was onto something when he wrote this, right? 1500s, ex-Roman Catholic cardinal came out of the church, kicked off the Protestant Reformation. He didn't do that because he was some zealous person. He experienced this love that I'm telling you about today. The love that I experienced when I was lost in the mountains in that snowy cold night looking for some warmth with no hope. And the fire invited me. Well, that same fire invited Martin Luther in the 1500s. And he was lost. He did everything. He used to do so much, so much works for salvation. He was lost. He did not know the love of God. Until one day when he read for himself, 
And it was this fire here that made Martin Luther say this. These are his words, not mine. When I look to myself, I do not know how I ever can be saved. But when I look to Jesus, I do not know how I ever can be lost. Wow. Lord, let us know your love for us today. We're there in the snowy mountains. We're just looking for some warmth. And maybe you've been a Christian for so long and, and being a Christian kind of became like, like a job to you. You know all the ins and outs of the Bible. You know exactly what to say and what not to say and how everything needs to be ran. You might know the Hebrew and the Greek and do a well job teaching it to others. Or maybe you've never come to know Christ personally. Maybe you've just came to church because it's been your thing ever since a child. Maybe you've been on the outside looking in for so long, even though you may be a teacher in the church. I ask that as Elijah comes up here to uh, do the benediction song, can you come up and begin? Because I'm asking now, during this time of closing, that we would stand together if it's your desire to go closer to that warmth of the fire one more time in your walk with Christ. Is it your desire, church, to be warmed, to be drawn and wooed, Right? The Bible says that no one can come to the Father. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him to Jesus. Are you being drawn today? It don't matter how long you've been a Christian. Stand up if that's your desire. If it's your desire to be drawn closer to the fire of the Heavenly Father as we close in benediction, let's stand up and let's give our hearts another time to Jesus. I know I need to. I know I need to. Let's go ahead and get, get the song playing. So. Heavenly Father, we give so much thanks to you this morning, Lord. There's so many, so many, so many times you've called us to come in and experience the warmth of your love. And yet we've turned right back into the cold. There's so many times, Lord, that you have asked us to leave this, Lord, and drop it and leave it alone. It's hurting us. We've picked it right back up. And yet there's so many times, Heavenly Father, We've separated ourselves from you even after conversion. Forgive us, Father, as a church. Forgive us individually. Lord, I know I need it. But Lord, don't leave us there as you forgive us. As beggars, Lord, we're just asking that you pick us up. Wipe us off, Father, and use us and strengthen us for your glory. That we can go out to this lost and dying world, Father. A world that's in cold and darkness, Lord, and lost without any hope. That we can be used by you to give them the message and say, Come, Lord, experience this warmth. You don't have to freeze to death. You don't have to have a cold heart. You never designed us for this, Father, and yet it hurts you even more. Father, we know that you're waiting for us to look like you, and we're sorry that we've set back the church in so many ways. Father, we just ask that you would breathe upon this church, Lord. Breathe upon our church. Breathe upon your church in general, Father, that your will would be done in us and through us, Lord, and that we would never, never want to go back into that cold again, that we would just seek you with everything we have. Thank you for the writings of the Bible. I pray, Lord, that it would be a desire in everybody's heart here today for the week to come, Lord, the new week that starts. It's a new week. Last week is coming and gone. 
The Sabbath is here, Lord, the end of the week, Lord, and now tomorrow is the beginning of a new one. I just pray, Father, that as day one begins, and even starting when we leave, Lord, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would impress upon us our need for your word, our need for change, and that day in and day out, we would find no comfort until we go to your word through the Holy Spirit, led by Jesus. Father, I pray that's my desire for everyone here, and if they agree with me, Lord, let everybody say, Amen.